0: Support for Innovation Hub comes from the Graken Center for Addiction at Boston Medical Center, making long-term recovery a reality for patients like Cassie, who now supports others struggling with the disease. You can see Cassie's story and learn more at bmcaddiction.org. Support for Innovation Hub comes from Cambridge Savings Bank. Introducing the CSB1 package, a checking account combined with investing through ConnectInvest to help you build a better tomorrow. cambridgesavings.com slash CSB1.
1: Welcome to Innovation Hub, I'm Kara Miller. In his 1968 campaign for president, Richard Nixon pointed to what he viewed as a very serious problem in the country, the crime rate. He said, Americans should be worried. This is an ad from the campaign and the voice you're gonna hear is Nixon's.
2: In recent
3: years, crime in this country has grown nine times as fast as population. At the current rate, the crimes of violence in America will double by 1972. We cannot accept that kind of future for America. We owe it to the decent and law-abiding citizens of America to take the offensive against the criminal forces that threaten their peace and their security.
1: By 1972, when he was running for re-election, Nixon said, and this is a quote, We have succeeded in stopping the spiraling growth in criminal activity. But by that time, he had also started a war on drugs, and he portrayed drug users as, in his words, a serious national threat. So the war on crime and on drugs pushed forward. When Nixon declared victory on crime in 1972, there were about 300,000 people in jails and prisons in the US, and that number had been pretty steady through the 50s and 60s. Now, in a population that hasn't even come close to doubling since 1972, There are seven times the number of people locked up. And the crime rate, which did rise higher in the 70s and 80s and 90s, is even lower now than it was in 1972. Much lower, actually, if you look at just violent crimes. But in the last few decades, a new industry has emerged as part of the effort to deal with crime, the private prison industry. How did private companies ever get into the business of running prisons, and does the demand for growth from shareholders, for example, which would be a concern of a burger chain or a clothing retailer, how does that pressure affect public policy? Lauren Brook Eisen is senior counsel at the Brennan Center for Justice, and Mark Maurer is the executive director of The Sentencing Project and the author of Race to Incarcerate. Welcome to you both. Thanks for your time.
4: Thanks. Good to be here.
1: Thank you for having us. So, um, Mark, I'm going to start with you. How did private prisons become an industry? I mean, this seems like, you know, a government function. How did it in the first place kind of get opened up to private people, to private companies, to contractors, that sort of thing?
4: Well, it starts back in the 1980s. This was the time that the war on drugs was really being launched in a massive way. The tough-on-crime movement was in its heyday with the adoption of harsh penalties, more people going to prison. Uh, Many of the years of the 1980s, we saw prison growth of 10% or more in a single year. Hmm. So states were scrambling. They had overcrowded prisons. They were trying to get money to buy new prisons to contain the population. And along came this group of new entrepreneurs who made an, an opening to state and federal governments and said, uh, we've got a solution for you. We can build and fill prisons, and we can help save you money. We'll keep these people locked up, and it'll be a win-win situation.
1: Lauren Brooke, as far as you can tell, or as far as any of us could tell, if we went to visit a private prison versus a public prison, how are they different um, You know, what is a private prison like and and how does it function?
5: Um, Private prisons and government-run prisons don't look very different from the outside or from the inside. And I think at the end of the day, how these facilities are so different is that one is state-run and is part of the government versus in these private prisons – a CEO of these corporations is making a profit, and the two largest private prison corporations in this country are CoreCivic, it used to be called CCA, they just rebranded and they're mm. now named CoreCivic, and Geo Group. they're both publicly traded on the stock exchange, and they earned a combined $4 billion in 2016 alone. That's more than Airbnb, Snapchat, Pandora, and the Dallas Cowboys mm. combined. Wow. So we're talking about significant profits. Because private industry is making uh, so much money off of our nation's predilection for incarceration, we should be seeing um, performance outcomes that are just much better, that beat the recidivism rates, for example, that you would see in a government-operated prison. And are we? We're not seeing that. So recidivism rates in this country are uh, incredibly high, between 50 to 75% of those who leave our jails and our prisons return within three years. Our recidivism rates in this country are very high, whether you're at a public prison or a private prison. But we also just don't have the very um, specific data to tell if there's a real difference between outcomes in private versus public prisons.
1: Do either of you know if prisoners who have been to both private and public prisons have talked about any difference that they can see?
5: So... I've interviewed current and former inmates and families for the book that I'm working on, and that's the question that I asked every single one of them. And most of them note that they were allowed more freedom in the sense that they had Xboxes and they had, um, you know, they they could buy more things and they could trade things with, with their fellow inmates. And there maybe wasn't enough programming at those facilities and nobody wanted trouble and the corrections officers didn't want trouble. And so they sort of looked the other way. You know, a couple of the inmates I interviewed had been convicted for um, sex crimes, you know, one of them was child pornography. I think mean, was just looking at pictures. Um, so in Vermont, he actually wasn't allowed to use computers at the prisons. But when he was sent to Michigan to a private prison there, still under the Vermont Department of Corrections contracts, um, you know, he was allowed to use a computer. They're just the rules seem to be a little lax, and also the the private prisons cherry pick the inmates, and so oftentimes they won't take inmates who suffer from AIDS. They won't take inmates who are sick, who are elderly. So it's, it's pretty hard to compare. Really? They get to decide what inmates they're going to house in their prisons? In a lot of cases, yes. That's really interesting.
4: Additionally, the states have had very mixed feelings about the contracting. So they've contracted with private prisons, but they haven't felt entirely comfortable with it. So they give them uh, people in prison who are designated as uh, minimum security rather than medium or maximum because they're not quite sure they Mm -hmm. trust them with uh, more difficult management issues.
1: So you talked about private prisons making hundreds of millions of dollars in, in pure profit. How are they able to do that and the government isn't or is the government making a lot of money? Off of prison? Are they just more efficient, private prisons?
5: Describe to me how that money is made. So, what happens is, you know, they look to cut costs. And most of the costs in running, operating a prison are in staffing costs. And so they may pay lower wages to their correctional officers. Uh, these staff members, these correctional officers, are not unionized. So, there aren't those added costs of pension and you know, all of the sort of costs that a union may require. And they look for other ways to cut staffing costs and other costs around the facility. Um, and that's really, at the end of the day, how these corporations are able to make money.
1: Mark, are there any hard numbers about, in the long run, 10, 20, 30 years down the line, is it more cost effective to go with a private prison? Or should a state, you know, if they want to build a prison, just saying, look, we're going to build it ourselves, we're going to issue the bonds, uh, you know, whatever needs to be done.
4: Yeah. Well, the best research they shows is there's no significant difference. There was a study some time ago, the General Accounting Office looked at some of the research out there in private prisons. They essentially concluded sometimes they were a little bit cheaper, sometimes a little more expensive, more or less, they were roughly the same. And Remember, this is just a cost to the state. So the private prison companies are saying, you know, we will lock people up at less cost to you. They're also saying to their stockholders and we'll also make a profit for you, too. Uh, As Lauren Brooke pointed out, most of the cost of any prison are in staffing, which means if you try to do cheaper and if you try to make a profit, um, your staff are less well-trained. You have higher turnover among your staff. Mm -hmm all the kinds of situations that generally can lead to some very serious problems. Because having well-trained and experienced staff in an institution filled with tension as prisons are, is really critical to operating uh, a safe and secure prison for both prisoners and guards.
1: Hmm. I'm Karen Miller, you're listening to Innovation Hub, and I'm talking with Lauren Brook Eisen and Mark Maurer about the rise of the private prison industry. Mark, let's talk about the current state of the private prison industry. We saw under President Obama a kind of push to get the government out of the business of using private prisons, private companies to build prisons. And, and, you know, before the election in 2016, the stock prices of the major private prison companies were really hurt. But they've rebounded a lot um, since the Trump administration came to power. And I just wonder where you see private prisons and the, the sort of public administration's decision about whether or not to use private prisons, where is that headed?
4: Well, I think there are two different lenses to look at. One is through the federal government, the other is at the state level. The federal government, for a variety of reasons, has been much more committed to privatization than the state's. And this has been true both in Democratic and Republican administrations. But Last August, the Justice Department announced that it would be phasing out the use of private prisons in the federal system, and they said they were doing so for two reasons. First, there was an inspector general report of the contract at facilities that found they had significantly more problems with safety and security in the private prison than they did in the public prisons. And secondly, there's been a substantial decline in the federal prison population in recent years, so it allows the uh, government to phase out these contracts because the beds aren't really needed so much.
5: Yes, and on that point, CCA uh, Core Civic and Geo Group stocks soared in the immediate days after Trump won the election. Um, in fact, CNBC called Trump's election nothing short of a game changer for the beleaguered private prison contractor industry. The stocks have greatly increased even after Attorney General Sessions' memo uh, rolling back the Obama Justice Department's guidance on private prisons, and I think that that memo. Is really telling. It was a one-paragraph memo to the Bureau of Prisons reversing this guidance, and there was there was no evidence, there were no statistics, there was no real reason for this reversal. Um, but I think I think that is sort of a harbinger to come, and I think some of the states, maybe taking their cue from what's happening at the federal level, and um, certainly feeling a little bit more comfortable to, um, you know, look at these contracts again, and when they do face overcrowding issues in their states, think about how they can relieve that through contracting with private prisons. And so I think it'll be interesting to see what happens at the state level. I think they are connected somewhat.
1: Let's talk about uh, the diversification of the private prison industry, because their services are not just for people who are convicted of crimes anymore. And so... Um, As we look at this future in which potentially there are going to be more immigrants detained, I know the ACLU has said something like half of the people who are detained, uh, who are immigrants, are in facilities run by private companies. I mean, I think we sort of imagine uh, Border Patrol agents keeping people in these vast areas. uh, But a lot of those areas are private spaces.
5: Yeah, so over half of the ICE facilities are contracted to uh, private corporations to run, and those are civil immigration Mm -hmm. detention centers. Most of those are along the southern border, so Texas, Arizona, California. Those civil detention centers house families, um, sometimes women and children. Mm -hmm. So a lot of those people have not been convicted of a crime. They might be there... Um, you know, waiting for you know citizenship or, you know, they may have a lot of these people have fled their own countries um, because of totalitarian governments or sexual abuse or other sorts of abuse that's happening to them in their home countries. So the private prison contractors um, really do have a huge footprint in that world. And I think, you know, given the Trump administration's stance on cracking down on undocumented citizens in this country, um, a lot of people are concerned that the footprint of private contractors will grow in terms of operating and building more of these types of facilities.
1: Mark, are we alone in the world in using private prisons? Are there other countries who follow this same model?
4: Well, there are a growing number of countries that are beginning to do this, but it's an American-driven movement. So the the same Mm. corporations that have established the industry here, now see the rest of the world as their sort of global market. Uh, So you can find these companies running prisons in Australia and Scotland, a number of other countries now. The
1: same companies, these America-based companies. These American-based companies,
4: exactly, Mm -hmm. exactly. And the ideology and the financial offers they make are very similar to what they've done here. Uh, They say, here's a good deal, we'll do it cheaper, and we'll take care of all your problems, Mm Sort of things, what happens.
1: I have this question for both of you, but um, Lauren Brooke Eisen from the Brennan Center, let me start with you. Like, why should we care about private prisons? If it's an industry that can do things in an efficient way, you know, maybe they pay slightly lower wages. Um, but maybe that makes things more efficient. If the recidivism rate isn't all that different from public prisons, should we care at all that there is a private prison industry and that, you know, we lean on it for maybe some of the things that used to be part of public services?
5: That's a great question. And a lot of people who study data, they, they say just that. They say, why should we care? We're talking about a little more than 126,000 people uh, who are inmates in privately owned or managed facilities across the country. It's about 8% of the state and federal inmates. That doesn't account for those who are in the private immigrant detention facilities. What's happened is that private prisons have sort of become this ground zero of the anti-mass incarceration movement. You know, the closure of these prisons uh, represents a concrete step that people can take to sort of reduce our reliance on incarceration. And, you know, your question is a great one because what does it mean to have people in a private facility? What does it mean to have government outsource this? And sort of the elephant in the room in in operating prisons for profit is that recidivism is financially lucrative to the private prison industry. And Mark Maurer, do you want to take that question on? I mean,
1: why should we care? That private prisons exist? Mm -hmm.
4: Well, I think it starts with, again, a fundamental conception of government. And uh, I think there's certain elements of government that we should not be contracting out. You know, someone, take an extreme example, should we contract out the foreign policy of the United States to a profit-making company? Well, it's ludicrous, but, um, you know, uh, there are clearly some lines where we say, no, this is clearly a government function. And when it comes to uh, keeping human beings in cages, which after all is what prisons are doing, to contract that out to a profit-making company, just I don't think feels right. It also, because of the potential, huge potential for problems developing in prisons, whether private or public, it adds one additional layer to any kind of oversight that we as citizens might have. In a public prison, we can go to the corrections commissioner. Journalists can try to get inside prison to look Mm. at conditions. Now, if we've got a private prison, maybe located in a different state than the contract comes from, there's just inherently going to be less oversight of what goes on there. And I think that's a real problem for all of us.
1: Mark Maurer is the executive director of The Sentencing Project and the author of Race to Incarcerate. And Lauren Brook Eisen is senior counsel at the Brennan Center for Justice. Thanks so much to both of you.
4: Thanks for having me.
5: Thank you so much.
1: We've got more about the early entrepreneurs in the private prison industry, who they were, and why they saw opportunity. That's at our website, innovationhub.org. From PRI and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub.
0: Support for Innovation Hub comes from Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, working to unleash the immune system's power to fight cancer and help develop promising new therapies. Videos, white papers, and patient stories are available at discovercarebelieve.org.
1: In the 80s, a young guy named Brewster Kale started working in an industry that was getting very hot. And in the 90s, he sold a couple businesses to some up-and-coming companies. One of those companies had only gone online four years before, but I think you could safely say that things kind of worked out. It was called Amazon. But Brewster Kahle didn't get paid by Amazon in cash. He got paid in stock. Again, kind of worked out. What Brewster Kahle went on to do, though, after he sold his businesses, was unusual. He decided he wanted to be a librarian. Actually, the librarian of the internet. For about 20 years, Kahle has been trying to collect web
2: pages. So we archive the full World Wide Web. Every two months, and we now have 1,000 librarians guiding how we do that. It's fr- available for free on archive.org, which is pretty neat.
1: The motivation behind this, though, only incidentally has to do with technology. For example, he's working to digitize one to two million books a year. But why?
2: Facts matter. I think, especially in this last election cycle, we found that people were just making stuff up and passing it off as true. And facts matter. Truth matters. Referencing things matters. Remembering when we have candidates uh, going and saying, I never said that. Well, yes, they did. How do you go and make that easily and smoothly available? It's by archiving things like television, radio broadcasts, making it searchable, referenceable. And so it isn't something that you can just paper over.
1: Of course, politicians have been shifting and shading their positions for a long time, and Cale wants the Internet Archive to be around for lots more political cycles. He worries that we're getting away from the early dreams that he and other pioneers had for the web, that it would be a place of connections and sharing knowledge, and that instead it's become a place in which knowledge is uncertain and under attack. When President Trump was running for office, he said in a speech about terrorists doing their recruiting and communicating online, that, quote, we're losing a lot of people because of the Internet, and we have to do something. And he spoke about, quote, maybe in certain areas, closing the Internet up in some way. I asked Cale if the president's suggestion, this idea of closing up the Internet, if that could really happen.
2: That can absolutely happen. So in uh, the Internet Archive, which is this rich materials, you know, millions of books, I don't know, is blocked to everyone in China right now. The Chinese government said there was some couple videos that uh, somebody had posted on the Internet Archive that they didn't want to have available. So they blocked everything. Uh, Russia has blocked and unblocked the Internet Archive over time. Right now, I believe Turkey is blocking uh, the Internet Archive.
1: Okay, so governments have tremendous power to do to use a kind of on off switch here.
2: Yes, absolutely. And we'll see whether uh, the United States grows into that pattern. At this point, there's been kind of First Amendment uh, that has really been strongly adhered to, freedom of the press. But Trump, um, as you're quoting, has mocked freedom of the press and uh, even jokingly talked of killing journalists. He hated them so much. So I think we may be coming into a fairly different time. We don't know what's going to happen. All we can tell is what it is that's been stated repeatedly by the officials that are taking over in Washington.
1: So one of the steps that you took uh, very soon after the election was to talk about backing up the Internet Archive in Canada. Why?
2: So when Trump was elected president, we woke up and Oh, well, that's a bit of a surprise. The polls predicted something else. We went back to the television archive. We've been archiving all of television and political ads and et cetera. And we went and searched to find what has he said about the Internet and freedom of the press. And what we found were some shocking statements. Really, we don't know what's going to happen, but we said, well, we should at least take him at his word. And since the Internet Archive thinks long-term, if we're trying to build the Library of Alexandria version 2, let's learn from version 1, which is best known for, well, not being here anymore. So the idea of, of taking preservation of our information is very seriously. And we thought about it, and we said, well, we have it in two locations, but both are in the Bay Area. We have a partial copy in Alexandria, Egypt, really, and also in Amsterdam, but those are partial copies. So we said, why don't we go and make a full copy in another country? And we had been working with Canada about doing partial copy of everything digitized from them. We said, why don't we just ramp that up to be a full copy? Mm -hmm. So we've been in conversation with the University of Alberta and Toronto, and it's going great.
1: I imagine there are people who have built websites in the past, uh, who've been mentioned on them, who want part of their history to disappear. You know, maybe they're ashamed of something they did. They think, oh, gosh, you know, I was 18. uh, I shouldn't have put that online. Do you think people have a right to, I don't know, make a mistake, do something, and have it disappear?
2: Certainly, private citizens are often using the internet for things that aren't meant for the ages. So, if it, um, And so we get uh, takedown requests from the uh, Wayback Machine all the hmm. time. So if people send info at archive.org, um, then we'll take things out of the Wayback Machine. And that seems to be a big issue. Hmm. Um, there are some entities like, you know, should politicians right. or should large corporations or should the government websites be able to do this? Some of that's a little bit up for granted. But right now, uh, a lot of these are taken down.
1: Well, and I was going to say, and we we have seen efforts by governments, including our government, to retroactively kind of polish things up and make it seem like, you know, if you you sort of go back to a previous press release or something, that things weren't exactly the way they they kind (laughs) of said they were.
2: Oh, sure. Yes. It's the Orwellian uh, idea of going back and, and changing past press releases actually happen. There's one that's, uh was pointed out by one of our users was uh, George W. Bush standing on an aircraft carrier saying, mission accomplished. And the headline read, combat operations in Iraq have ceased. Mm-hmm. And a couple weeks later, they changed it to say major combat operations huh. have ceased. So that seems pretty Orwellian. But then a couple months after that, the whole press release disappeared off their website completely. So the only record of it was actually on Archive.org's Wayback Machine. I can't even tell you which is worse, changing the past or deleting the past.
1: You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller talking with Brewster Kahle, who many people think of as the Internet's librarian. So I have to ask you in this context about The rise of fake news, which we have seen so much of in the past year, and all indications are we're going to see it far into the future. Because you know, you've got um, 2017 is a is you know we've got a lot of elections coming up in different countries, and the the sort of um, uh, interest in pumping out fake news to discredit one candidate or another is certainly going to be there. What have you thought? Like here you are, you've been involved with the web for a long long time and and you see this kind of just it's information but it's fake information and people are believing it and like what have you made of this as it's happened over the past let's say 12 months
2: Oh, it feels tragic, doesn't it? Uh, we have plenty of blame to go around. Let me let me share some of, of my favorite complaints. Twitter. Somebody decided 140 characters, and 140 characters is a headline. So all we have is people blurting headlines with no substantial anything to back it up. And we had a whole campaign largely by, based on shouting headlines. Somebody came up with 140 characters. They could have made it 500 words. And I think the world... Uh, it would be a very different place and a better place if we were to... Change some of these these things that we look back on and go and say that was a mistake. There's uh, the trending news that is all AI based on what you're interested right, in on Facebook. Right. Well, that's been that's been covered. But let's look a little deeper. We've conned almost everybody into turning to their screens to answer the questions that we've basically said the library is on your screen. You can go and find anything you want. Just go to Google. It turns out that's not true. Almost all the 20th century's books magazines, newspapers, are not online. So if you wanted to go and find out and cite something for real, say you're a Wikipedian, say you're a journalist, you, you're you going to go to something that you can find online. Right. You're not going to go back to a library. Right. So we librarians have failed as well to make all of the treasures in our libraries available to this next generation. So we've got to fix that pronto.
1: How much money is there in like getting out all the microfilm. I mean, I remember being in college and like looking at microfilm of old newspapers. But that's that's a process. About you need a machine. $100 million. Dollars. $100 million did you say? Uh-
2: all, that's it. To be able to build a Yale, a Princeton, or a Boston Public Library class library that would be available to all, maybe some of it through lending or some kind of restrictions mm-hmm. and things like that, is about one hundred million million one-time cost. So we are now uh, digitizing 1,000 books a day, and we're starting to deal with much more on the modern books. But we would really like partners to be able to get that built, say, in the next couple of years so that people have Access, easy access to all the say nonfiction material so they can cite their Wikipedia articles on something real and not just bouncing around on whatever people have to happen to have put in a blog.
1: Can you imagine you've talked a lot about the library at Alexandria, can you imagine um, that the Internet Archive will be around in I don't know, a thousand years?
2: The Internet Archive, hopefully, in some vestige, will be around in a thousand years. What happens to libraries is they're burned. They're, they're destroyed. And they're generally destroyed by governments. They don't want the old stuff around. Often, you know, a hundred years later, they're sorry, and they try to uh, put it back together again. But it's destroyed. Yeah. So that will happen to the Internet Archive at some point. Um, hopefully not soon, but at, at some point. So let's design for it. If they'd made another copy of the Library of Alexandria and put it in India or China... We'd have the other works Mm. of Aristotle, Mm. the other plays of Euripides. Mm. It would be fantastic. But we don't. They didn't make a copy.
1: Mm. I think a lot of people have uh, asked this question, but as people go, spend more and more of their lives online. What do you think should happen to, like, little libraries that are in every town? Obviously, there's big libraries, like the New York Public Library. There's big, you know, lots and lots of libraries in in L.A. and in Houston and all over the place. Um, What should happen to libraries, which there's so many of?
2: oh, they should stay and grow. I love the quirky little libraries that have their own points of view. And how can they grow in this sort of winner-takes-all, everything's going to be from Amazon kind of world? Let's deliver the best we have to offer to anybody curious enough to want to have access to it. And let's do it in lots of different ways. Let's not spend less on libraries, let's spend it differently. Mm. Because I don't think we're spending the $12 billion a year we spend on libraries all that well. We're ending up with these databases that these libraries are subscribing to, and they're just becoming customer service departments or just handling people that just want a a warm place to be on the Internet. We can do so much more with this infrastructure.
1: You know, a while back we talked on this show to a boy uh, who, young boy, and um, he had been born with a hand that had limited mobility, and so... He went to his local public library in Delaware, I think, and um, there was a 3D printer and he printed himself a new hand with a lot more
2: mobility. <laughs> yes.
1: I and mean, it was like an, a fascinating thing that could happen at a library.
2: Libraries, I think, are, are interesting, uh, public libraries, mostly what you're talking about now, um, by going and bringing uh, much more resources than you can have in your house, more than you can get through your laptop. What What's the big screen experience? What's that 3D printer? What's the, because you might have reference librarians on tap. They also have a special role in the copyright regime where we're allowed to go and expected to preserve and provide enduring access to materials, some of which are in print, but a lot of which are no longer in print. If you wanted to get to a newspaper, not in the sense of today's newspaper, but last week's, last month's, last year's, last decades, that's what libraries are are kind of essential for. Mm-hmm. So let's go and build on that in the digital era. If we don't put the best we have to offer within reach of our children, we're going to get the generation we deserve. And what's on the internet isn't good enough. It's thin. Anything we know well, yeah, there may be a Wikipedia article. Uh, maybe there's some random blog post, But the a lot of the background materials, the debates, the whole 20th century really is missing. Hmm. And if we don't educate people on the lessons of the 20th century, we could end up in trouble. Brewster Kahle is founder of The
1: Internet Archive, a nonprofit digital library. Brewster, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Kara. We've got more about how the Internet Archive works and about their decision to back up their work in Canada. That's at innovationhub.org. I'm Kara Miller. You're listening to Innovation Hub. Last week, we talked with former Canadian diplomat Scott Gilmore, who argues the American dream has moved to Canada in part because both immigrants and visitors seem increasingly likely to knock on Canada's door rather than America's. After we talked to him, the San Francisco Chronicle analyzed applications from foreign students to the University of California system and found that the numbers are now starting to dip after going up 700% in the last 12 years. And the dips aren't just in California.
3: Nearly 40 percent of universities, uh, so about 39 percent, reported declines in international student applications for this coming fall.
1: Elizabeth Redden is a correspondent for Inside Higher Ed, and she's been tracking the numbers.
3: The remainder either uh, stayed the same or saw increases. It's striking because international student numbers have been increasing steadily in the U.S. They've been rising every year for the past 10 years.
1: That surge has had implications both for the quality of recruited students and for the finances of many institutions. But Redden says admissions officers are trying to reassure both parents and kids.
3: So I've talked to some folks who have uh, reported hearing from students' concerns about anti-Muslim attitudes in particular. Admissions professionals are reporting concerns on the part of families about the perception that the climate in the U.S. is now less welcoming.
1: Redden says that there's also concern from citizens of countries not mentioned in either of the president's travel bans. And the concern is that the list of countries may expand. And then there's Canada.
3: Certainly uh, a lot of Canadian universities are reporting big application gains this year, 20 percent or more at a time that many, although not all uh, U.S. universities, are reporting declines in, in international applications.
1: You can't draw a straight line from the U.S. to Canada and say that the dip in one place has caused the other to benefit. And Canada has been doing great in terms of growth from international students for a while, not just this past admission cycle. But if you want a couple of interesting tidbits, here they are. Canada has seen big growth, according to Redden, from two, perhaps, unexpected countries. One is Mexico, and the other one?
3: Many Canadian universities are also reporting big increases in applications from the U.S., so that would be international students for them, (laughs) and increased traffic on their websites and whatnot uh, immediately following the uh, presidential election in the fall. I think we're going to have to wait and see a little bit, but it's certainly clear that Canada is still seeing big increases at a time that many U.S. universities are seeing decreases.
1: Elizabeth Redden is a correspondent for Inside Higher Ed. From PRI and WGBH Radio, I'm Kira Miller and this is Innovation Hub. There are lots of things that the government does, like filling in potholes or fighting fires that don't make any money, but that's okay. They're meant to be public services. And there are lots of things that businesses do, like creating slightly sleeker smartphones or devising temporary tattoos. They don't really advance society much, but their goal is to make money, and they do. But between government and private industry, there's something called social innovation, and it's been on fire in recent years. Social innovation has the potential to generate some money, but its goal is to advance society with an entrepreneurial approach. Think about microloans, or fair trade coffee, or carbon trading. Those are all social innovations. President Obama was interested in using social innovation, and President Trump maybe too. Sonal Shah worked with the Obama administration, and she says that one of Trump's early hires, Dina Powell, understands social innovation and knows that public-private alliances can impact everything from education to health care. Sonal Shah is the executive director of Georgetown's Beck Center for Social Impact and Innovation, And she argues that some of the divides between how the private market works and how the public sector works can be bridged.
6: If you're looking for a new idea, so let's say, for example, a new way of transportation, then you're looking to bust the mold of the current taxi service. You look at Uber or you look at Lyft or other models. When we think about the social sector, the way we count social services is like, how many people did we serve? We don't actually ask the question, did anything get solved? (laughs) Are people healthier? Are students reading at third grade levels? We don't really ask that question. We just, the way current sector works, whether it's philanthropy or the government, we pay for a number of services rendered.
1: Mm. When you say like how many people got served, I think of that as like, okay, let's say you're running a food pantry and you think, how many people are able to go through the food pantry, like how much food do we have in order to serve 500 people or 700 people or whatever it is. But maybe you're not thinking, and tell me if this is kind of what you're getting at, you're not thinking about, well, how do we get to a point where people don't need to come to the food pantry? You know, is there a better way to solve the underlying root problem, which is not how many cans of tomato sauce you have in the pantry?
6: And Kara, that's exactly that's exactly the point uh, that you just made, which is we do need the food pantries because there are going to be people that need access to food and that need access to have nutrition. But if more people are getting access to the food pantry, we should be thinking about what the problem is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> is is the is the solution more food pantries with more food, or are we sh- should we be thinking about what's causing hunger?
1: So, do you remember what one of the first. Actual real life examples of thinking about for you thinking about social innovation and how you invest um, to change the social situation for people. Like, do you remember what one of those first situations was that kind of caught your eye?
6: Uh, for me, it was actually one that we practiced ourselves. So my siblings and I started a nonprofit about fifteen years ago. It was like a Peace Corps for Indians, and we're working in this village in India and they need access to water. And we could keep delivering water, but we didn't actually have a way for them to pay for clean water. And yet when we looked at the data and we saw what they were buying, they're buying pouches of water. And they're paying more money for those pouches of water than they were for the municipal water that was coming in. And we're like, well, what do you do differently that clearly people are willing to pay for clean water and at some cost that they can afford but they're not getting access to it. So how do we fix that market disruption that's taking place there? And my brother actually started a company that basically provided clean water through entrepreneurs in villages. So he created a reverse osmosis system that would take the municipal water. They worked out a deal with the municipal authorities to make sure that the water came consistently. And once or twice a day, people could come and get clean water. And people would pay about 20 cents on the dollar to get access to a bucket of clean water. Hmm. And the line was pretty long. And what, what we learned from that was not that people weren't willing to pay, they were willing to pay for a good service.
1: Do you feel like that lets the government off the hook at all? They're like, yeah, we can deliver dirty, inconsistent water, and some really smart people will figure out uh, how to make that work for the people in the community.
6: That's a great question. I think the incentive for the government was not to provide dirty water. Another place where philanthropy can play a role is focusing government on those things to provide cleaner water on a regular basis. While this market mechanism is one way of thinking about how to solve a specific problem, that shouldn't take the government off the hook for doing its job of at least providing consistently clean water.
1: Hmm. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Cara Miller. I'm talking with Sonal Shah. She's an economist and executive director of Georgetown's Beck Center for Social Impact and Innovation. So let's talk about another um, situation in which, you know, this idea of social innovation can work in practice. One of the innovations that you've talked about is a way that the New Zealand government is incentivizing companies that build and operate prisons to make sure that prisoners stay out of prison, which is actually completely counterintuitive to me. How does it work? So
6: the New Zealand government, through their finance ministry, runs a program called Public Private Partnerships. And if you think about it in the United States and around the world, the way public private partnerships work are things like toll roads, building and operating prisons. But no one incentivizes people to improve the roads or to keep prisons different, right? So the government basically said, what if we change the incentive structure for the people who build and operate prisons from just building and operating them to saying, we'll pay you more if you reduce the number of people that come back to prison? Now, this company that is implementing this basically said, okay, then how do we design a prison? How do we redesign a prison that keeps people out, not
1: built to keep people in. That was my first question. How can architecture change whether people end up coming back to prison after, you know, their first offense or their second offense or whatever?
6: And that's exactly what they changed is the architecture. And they brought in architectural uh, designers and said, how do we do that? So by the time they're in that last stage of being in prison, they're almost living independently in houses Hmm. and figuring out how to live and how to uh, operate in a world. The second thing they had to do was train their wardens differently. So how as a warden do you now work on helping rehabilitate prisoners and not keep them in? And then the third thing they had to do was keep track of the data. What are what exactly are people coming in for? So when they're giving them programming it's for programming for the issues that they came in for Mm -hmm. not just generic rehabilitation programming Mm -hmm. and and so that just kind of changes the incentive structure and the company that's implementing this says what i need to do is just figure out what my risk metrics are and what do you mean by risk metrics so how do i their normal risk metric is am i operating the prison is the infrastructure staying clean Mm -hmm. but now i have to think about am I running a program that's helping rehabilitate and if it's not what do I need to do
1: if you were um, in charge of things are there areas we talked about prisons but you know whether it's healthcare or housing or education are there a few specific things you would point to and say man if I could just address this through <laughs> social innovation I would love to I think there's a re- there's real potential here
6: um, I, I definitely think in education, especially in early childhood education, there is opportunity. The second is ha- in health care we can pay for prevention, and we just have to rethink our incentives for whether you pay for treatments or you actually pay for prevention. And how do you incent both the people and the providers to think about prevention more effectively? And the third place, I don't think we talk about it a lot, but is really in child welfare. People, especially people that go through the system, if you're a foster child, how do we help a foster child all the way through the system that they have a better outcome in life and not um, get stuck in a system that sometimes you get lost in? And in those three areas, I think we can actually have a tremendous impact
1: on people's lives. You know, you uh, mentioned uh, healthcare. Healthcare is such a big part of our economy, it is just so massive, and it's getting only more massive all the time. Explain how you think the idea of creating financial incentives in healthcare could change people's behavior, could change how much we pay for health care. Explain how, you know, sketch that out a little bit. On service delivery,
6: just thinking about how do we keep People healthier, so they can do things like uh, before they get in, before they get diabetes, taking care of themselves. Either whether it's walking, whether it's uh, eating properly, whether it is um, you know taking uh, taking the medicines that they needed to take, but recognizing that there are ways to avoid big issues, cancer, cancer screenings, making sure people get their cancer screenings early. So we're not catching it at the third and fourth stage, but we can catch it at the first and second stages, but really paying attention to prevention as opposed to just uh, treatment. There's incentives that can be taken through that process. And there are companies, so there are organizations, like for example, Nurse Family Partnerships, uh, which is all over the country now, works with low-income families and mothers, especially when they're pregnant, by sending in nurses, helping them uh, take care of their children, and teaching them how to go through the pregnancy, take care of their children when they're born. And what they have been able to do is reduce unhealthy babies being born, and they've been able to increase the healthiness of mothers during pregnancy. And that has been a huge cost on the system that reduces costs
1: over time. And, and uh, you also mentioned education. Can you give me an example of success in social innovation in the education sector, a, a time where it actually changed outcomes?
6: So there's a great organization in India called Educate Girls, and they actually did a um, pay-for-success bond, uh, results-based financing, that basically what they were trying to do is to make sure parents had the incentive to send their daughters to school. And they have created a program that provides incentives to parents to send their daughters to school, and they're seeing now the retention rates of girls in school increase Hmm. by a fairly significant number. And what's happening is they looked at this both from a grant-making perspective, but they created an incentive for results. So the organization got paid for achieving results, not just for the number of girls that attended school, but the number of girls that are staying in school Hmm. longer. Hmm which is a different way of approaching the problem. And that's a pretty clear innovation of saying, like, we need to solve one problem, which is girls staying in school, and they're finding ways to do that.
1: Right. Sonal Shah is executive director of Georgetown's Beck Center for Social Impact and Innovation. Sonal, thank you so much. Kara, thank you so much. We've got info on the Nurse-Family Partnership that is using public and private funds to help more than 3,000 first-time mothers in South Carolina. That's at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash innovationhubradio. Thanks to the people who helped put together this show, senior producer Matt Purdy, associate producers Mark Sollinger and Caroline Lester, and engineer Doug Sugerts. We also have production help this week from Matt Toda. From PRI and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation
0: Hub. Support for Innovation Hub comes from Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. Discover. Care. Believe.
5: PRI Public Radio International.